If you have a shared love for murder mystery podcasts and word games, then this episode is just the one you've been waiting for. We travel across the world for our conversation with author Hannah Alkoff to discuss her novel, Queen of Tiles. Hannah drops us into the city of Kuala Lumpur a year after the mysterious death of Najwa's best friend and Scrabble champ, Trina Lowe. The Najwa is ready to resume her life, but as secrets are revealed and lies are told, she must solve the mystery of her friend's death or face being blamed for it. Stay with us on the next episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Mm. Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Danny. And I am Veronica. And uh, we are joined by none other than Hannah Alkoff, who is the author of our book of the month for YA, which is Queen of the Tiles. Uh, Hannah is the author also of The Weight of Our Sky and The Girl and the Ghost. She graduated with a degree in journalism from Northwestern University and has spent most of her life working with words both in fiction and nonfiction. She lives in Kuala Lumpur with her family, and you can find her online at her website, Hana Alkaf, which is H-A-N-N-A-L-K-A-F.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at Yes, It's Hana, Hana with H. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So um, in celebration of all things Queen of the Tiles, uh, <laughs> what we like to do with our authors, we like to just to put you in the, in the hot seat for- Oh no, for- right from the beginning? <laughs> we want to loosen you up, you know? Oh gosh, okay. Conversation, have some fun. Uh, so I'm going to pass it off on to Denny and she will get us started. Yes. Question number one. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, no. I, I like the stress I'm feeling. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. What was the first story you wrote um, ever? And what was it about? And how old were you, if you remember? Uh, I was probably about eight years old. Um, and I had been raised on a steady diet of um, British children's literature. Because I live in Malaysia. Um, which was a former British colony. And um, early on, and even to a certain extent now, much of the fiction that we were getting in English um, was coming from uh, the UK, from the US. It was very rare to see locally published books um, in English. And so I was reading a lot of an author called Enid Blyton, which is a very popular option for uh, kids growing up in Malaysia. And so I think it was a story about like baby farmhouse animals, like baby farm animals. Um, 
like talking chicks and talking ducks and talking kittens and puppies. And I, I had never lived on a British farm, but every, every animal on there was definitely like, if they had accents, they were speaking in British accents. (laughs) (laughs) I do not remember the plot. I doubt there was much of one because I was eight, but um, I, I do remember spending a lot of time making sure that the illustrations were just right. Um, but yes, that was probably my very, very first attempt at a short story. Uh, and it was, yeah, it, it <laughs> yeah, it was very much influenced by a, up to that point, a lifetime of reading um, British children's fiction. <laughs> yes, the, the goat would be like, I don't know. I, I was trying to figure out like the English accent, how the horse would talk. <laughs> I, can't do, I can't do an English accent. I'm not even going to attempt it. No. <laughs> We're not we're not gonna go Bridgerton on you. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> um, what is your what is your favorite word if you have one? Ooh, um, I like obsequious. I think it's one of those words that sounds exactly like what it means. Like somebody who's like slimy and not to be trusted. Like I just I love the sound of it, like the way it feels on your tongue. Like I love that. It's not a very happy word. <laughs> now that I think about it, it's like, um, but it fits perfectly with the vibe of the book that we're discussing today. I'm sort of mad at myself that I didn't like try and force it into the book somehow. Would have been a good high scoring Scrabble word too. But yeah, I really love the word obsequious. I don't know why. There's just something about the way when you say it, you feel like you're a villain. <laughs> what was the highest score you've gotten in Scrabble? Ooh, oh, oh, so you, now we're getting into the meaty stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't remember the exact score, but I've definitely beaten people by a good 300 point spread. Wow! Uh, yeah, I've definitely beaten people by, by a 200 to 300 point spread before. Yes. God damn. Oh my I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> Do you know what is the, the highest scoring word that has ever been? That has ever been played off the top of my head. I can't remember it. Um, I, th- I put these facts in the book and then obviously I promptly just like forgot them all. Um, but, but there is the highest word that's ever been played, but there's also the highest word that it's possible to play. Like people have figured out what's the highest word that's possible to play, which is oxyphenbutazone. But in order to be able to play it, you have to have a very specific set of circumstances because obviously oxyphenbutazone is a lot um, longer than the seven tiles that you get on a scrapple rack. And so it had the, the board has to be configured in such a specific way that you can hook on letters that are already on the board in order to be able to, to play it at all. Um, and so this is a very specific set of circumstances that probably like will never happen. But somebody actually sat down and calculated what set of circumstances that would be to be able to do like a max scoring word. And it's oxyphenbutazone. I'm very fun at parties now that I know all these facts. Let me tell you, <laughs> everybody wants to talk to the word nerd at the party. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. I am a repository of absolutely useless word information fantastic we, we love it we we love some you know good good words of wisdom <laughs> what is your malaysian comfort food um it is a food called nasi lemak uh, which is supposed to be a breakfast food but honestly we eat it like anytime we want it and it is rice that's cooked in coconut milk so you get that really lemak means like fatty 
Um, so you get that really like rich um, flavor to it. And then it's served with a spicy sambal, um, fried like anchovies, like really tiny ones. So they get really crispy. Um, and then an egg and some cucumber. Um, and that's the most basic form, but you get all sorts of fancy stuff. Like people will serve it with like chicken curry or like huge pieces of like fried chicken or like all sorts of different variations, but in its most basic form, that's what it is. Um, and it's, like I said, it's meant to be eaten at breakfast, but honestly, people eat it all the time, whenever they want. <laughs> and that's my favorite food. Whenever I used to, because I went to college in America, and whenever I used to come home, it's a long, long flight. It, it will take me like 24 hours to, to get back from Chicago um, to my parents' house. And my mom would always make sure that she would cook her nasi lemak for me um, whenever I landed. Because she would know that that's the first thing I would want to eat. So I would get in the door, put down my bags, say hello to everybody, like hugs, kisses, whatever. And then I would sit down and I would eat nasi lemak. Um, <laughs> And she would always have it ready. Like it'd be laid out already, it'd be done for me. She'd be like, yes, I know this is what you want. I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, that is so righteous. That is nice. That's nice. <laughs> Home to some of your mother's cooking. That's, that's exactly. Cool. After that long flight, it was exactly what I want. And then I would just like go to bed and crash for like yes. hours. It's very yeah. interesting because I am Filipino and we mm-hmm. have like a um something like that which the rice would be like a garlic fried rice but the anchovies would be the same it would be fried. yes really it really would be fried really crispy salty just the right texture for it oh there so would good. be egg and then instead of um instead of like the cucumber there would be like the potato not potato papaya mm. and like um it would be like almost kind of sweet like pickled y'all making me hungry now yeah, and yeah. I haven't actually had any breakfast. Sounds really good. <laughs> Might have to go out and find some nasi lemak now. There you go. There you go. <laughs> know what you eating today? <laughs> <laughs> and when you when were when you were young, what did mm-hmm. you wanted to be like? Uh, it's always an interesting question because I wanted, if we're talking young, young, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, but um, somewhere along the way, I kind of internalized the fact that um, the books I was reading didn't really have authors whose names sounded like mine um, or characters who who looked like me um, came from where I come from. And so I sort of internalized the fact that it wasn't a very practical dream um, Mm. to be an author that way, Um, which is kind of sad to think about, like you have to think about practicality when it comes to your dreams when you're like 10 or 11 um and so at around that age I decided that the the legit way for me to work with words was to become a journalist um and that's what I focused on from then on um from around the age of 11 or 12 I really just focused on on learning how to be a, a journalist and learning how to be a good journalist and that's what I went to college for in the end um so I didn't actually aside from that you know sad early attempt with the farm animals um, I didn't actually start writing fiction properly until I was 30, probably. Yeah. So um, I always wanted to be a writer. I always knew I wanted to work with words. It's just that at a certain point, I got this idea in my head that um, the only real, real way that I could do that was to be a journalist. And look mm. at you now. Look at you now. Um <laughs> You you mentioned that you went to school in in Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. We read that in your bio earlier. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I was just curious as how someone comes all the way from Malaysia and find themselves in the big place, <laughs> Illinois, the winter <laughs> city. Like, what was that experience oh, like gosh. with no um, nasi lemak? <laughs> no nasi lemak. No, um, it was it was the first time I'd ever been away from home. Um, and that was like, I was literally thousands of miles from home. Um, I was lucky enough that my parents were like, we were in a privileged enough position that my parents could come and like, drop me off at least like, you know, help me settle down, like help me, you know, have the college experience of let's go to Target and Bed Bath and Beyond and get all the things that you need for your dorm room and stuff like that. Um, but basically, after like, a week or so they were like all right bye <laughs> going home <laughs> and and then it was just me um in America and I I didn't know anybody like I didn't um I didn't travel over with any other like kids who'd been accepted or anything like that it was just me um and so it was <laughs> I mean the thing about America is that your culture is so pervasive that I was that I had a good degree of familiarity with um, a lot of what I was encountering and my siblings had all gone to American universities before so it wasn't my first time in the country it's just that it was my the first time on my own <laughs> and I'd never been to Chicago like I'd never lived in Chicago specifically like so um, that first winter was <laughs> Let's just say I was taken aback by that first winter. <laughs> um, and my, my college God. campus, my college campus is by the lake, right? It's by Lake Michigan. Um, and so that experience of trekking back and forth across campus um, during winter time, uh, it was a learning experience. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was trying to figure out how to be on my own. And trying to figure out how to live with all these people who were very, very different from me. Mm -hmm. Um, Trying to live in a dorm for the first time. Trying to have a roommate for the first time. um, Figuring out how to spend money for the first time. I mean, like, sorting out my own finances. Um, My sister lived in Wisconsin at the time. She was working in Wisconsin. So she was at least just a phone call or a train ride away. But you also don't want to mess up so badly that you have to call in reinforcements in the form of a sibling who will never let you hear the end of it. Um, And so it was really trying very much to be as independent as possible, never having had the experience of having been independent before that. Um, And I think that's everyone's college experience. It's just that my home was so far away. (laughs) Like home was so far away for me. Um, so yeah, it, I wouldn't take back anything, um, any experience that I had there. It was definitely eye-opening. Um, but yeah, it was it was probably the first time also that I experienced being a, a person of color, which is not a term that I would have ever used for myself coming from where I am from. Um, so that was also interesting. <laughs> so yeah. So um, as we now pivot over into talking about Queen of Tiles, will you um, just give us the origin story um, behind this wonderful novel of yours, how it came to be? Um, Queen of the Tiles was actually the second novel I started writing ever. 
Um, my debut was my first. The Weight of Our Sky was the first novel I ever wrote. And Queen of the Tiles was the book I started writing while I was waiting for that to go through the process of publishing, right? The whole pipeline. I was like, okay, you know what? If I just sit here and think about this debut and what I'm supposed to do and how it's going to be received, I'm just going to go into an anxiety spiral. And so I need to start writing something else. Um, and so I had this idea about a mystery that happens at a Scrabble tournament. And the reason I wanted it to happen at a Scrabble tournament is A, because I really love Scrabble. <laughs> like I love Scrabble. Um, I'm a huge word nerd. Um, but also because I had experience uh, with that world because I had played competitive Scrabble um, for about a year before I gave it up for other things. Um, and my brother was uh, for a time a pretty like a much more hardcore um, competitive Scrabble player and I remember a lot of weekends like being shuttled back and forth um, to his tournaments to his weekend tournaments um, and like hearing about the gameplay and seeing him studying these word lists and you know and at the time the in the internet wasn't such a big thing so it was literally like a printed out like booklet of words that he would just study um, it was this thick and this big and it was just like the the words looked like ants like they were printed so tiny um, but he would bring that everywhere and it was just bound with like duct tape and you just bring it everywhere and he would study the lists and he and his friends would talk about it and like I think this is like a, a strange thing for people to to think about but Malaysia actually ha had and I think probably still has a pretty strong like Scrabble scene like Scrabble's a thing here and so at the time that he was playing there would be there was a special column in one of the English dailies um, here in the daily newspaper that would every week um, sort of recap like tournament Scrabble that happened over the weekend and so it was a big deal like oh one like it, there was one week where my brother managed to play the word Quetzals which is a, a tropical bird of paradise kind of thing. Um, and he managed to play it. And it was the high scoring word of the tournament that weekend. And he got written up in that little thing. And I actually worked the word Quetzals into the book because I was like, oh, it's a, like, a little, like a little tribute to my brother, you know. Um, but I wanted to write that world because I remember it. And I remember being so interested by it, like, oh, they really don't think of words as words. Like it's, they're just units, you know, they're ways to score points. Like how do you put them together to score points? And there was so much strategy and everything behind it. And he was so into it. Um, and so I was like, I've never seen that written into a book, right? Um, and I really wanted to try it. But the thing about writing it as your second novel ever, like attempting a murder mystery as your second novel ever, is that you are like, or at least I, I was in no way like equipped to do that like I didn't have the skill set yet mm. to really put the story together and so over the course of probably about two to three years I rewrote Queen of the Tiles like six times before it ever went to an, my editor um, I just I couldn't figure out the shape of it mm. and that's six full drafts there's like probably like six more like half drafts or like attempts at drafts that wow. just didn't like make it it's just it it wasn't working at one point I set it aside and I wrote what would be my middle grade debut um, before I ever like came back to it because I was like you know what I'm not I'm just not capable right now of telling the story the way I want to tell it um, and so it took a long time to sort of excavate it and figure out the shape of it um, 
And even after it sold and I was working with my editor, I think we rewrote like chunks of it and especially the ending probably, I don't know, four or five more times after that. Like it just, it was a process. (laughs) Um, So it just, it took a really long time to be the writer capable of writing the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah. Wow. And that's that's how we got Queen of the Tiles. That's, that's how we got Queen of the Tiles. It took a really long time. It was a painful process, but yeah. I, re- I when I started reading your book, I instantly wish I was friends with Roxanne Gay because I know oh. that she loved she loved Scrabble, and I would have wrapped this up and sent. It to her. <laughs> I knew she would absolutely but- love to read something of this of this nature because she she loves the game of Scrabble so. You, you got a good book here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Veronica is good at Scrabble. I suck. <laughs> I, I'm not nowhere near. You're like. <laughs> All right. Come on, Veronica. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. Well, you, I, you say you're good at Scrabble. Let's talk about it. Come on. <laughs> you will have your, your highest score with me, which would probably be like. <laughs> points. Yeah. Like, I think because. I, I grew up in the Philippines, but I came over here when I was in my 20s. So my sisters were younger, but Scrabble is one of the games that we would always play and argue about <laughs> because my sisters <laughs> like inventing words. And they listened to the podcast and my younger sister invented a word. And she and and me and my middle sister was like, you have to name your child this, this name. We're just going to be like inventing our own rules because we just want somebody to win. And, and my youngest sister is the most competitive out of all of us. Um, my, my husband won't play. He used to play Scrabble with me because he knows how much I love the game. And he, in fact, he gave me like a special edition, like a version of it uh, for one of my birthdays, like a really nice, like wooden edition. Um, but he won't play with me because he says it's not fair that I know like the two letter and three letter words and all that stuff. He's like, these are not words that people use in real life. And it's not fair that you know them. And then you score like 50 points a turn. And like, I'm putting together words like cat. And she's like, it's not fair. Or like, oh, like ten, 10, 10 point word. That to me is a big deal already. <laughs> Yeah, so he he won't play with me anymore. So I have like Scrabble boards, and then nobody nobody play with. It's very sad. Uh, I story of my life. <laughs> like words with friends or something. Exactly. I have to I have to resort to like online Scrabble if I'm <laughs> if I really want to play. Um, but let's be honest, like who has the time? Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Who has the time right now? Um, but in college, I used to, that's one of the things I used to do when I was in America is one of the ways I would keep in touch with like certain friends in Malaysia was that we would play um, online Scrabble together mm-hmm. and then like fight about it over like MSN Messenger. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but we would we would play games of online Scrabble together. That's how I kept in touch with a couple of friends of mine. Instead oh. of like emails and stuff, be like the chat box in the online <laughs> Scrabble game. Um, yeah. And like a lot of trash talking because that's it's our love true. language. It's part, of, it's part of the game. Yes. Oh, no, of course. Of course. Although not officially. Please, anybody who's actually like interested in playing tournament Scrabble, trash talking is not actually part of the game. Just going to put it out there really quickly. 
though it should don't but... turn up at a tournament and be like i'm gonna like talk smack across the board like you can't do that <laughs> there are rules <laughs> get this child out of the room <laughs> you get kicked out you get banned from the tournament anyway. so how how was the process uh, in creating these complex characters and very, but very well-rounded characters surrounding Najwa? A painful? Oh, no, actually, um, the characters are never, I, I don't know if this is going to come out right, but the characters aren't usually the hardest part for me because they sort of, um, they appear <laughs> in my head and I sort of already know who they are when I start writing them. Um, I interview my characters extensively before I begin writing anything. Mm -hmm. um, I am a I am a I'm a planner. <laughs> if you can't tell I'm a plotter um, and a planner. Um, I like my spreadsheets and I like my you know word documents and lists of links. Like I like all these things. Um, so uh, before I begin writing anything other than having the outline and things like that, I like to um, interview my characters so I'll have like a character sheet um, that I like to fill out for definitely the main character but also really important secondary characters which Queen of the Tiles is full of those um, and I sort of want to know each one before I start writing them because I want to know like I want it to feel natural how they react in situations how they talk to each other how they banter with each other um, and so yeah I have like a whole dossier all the stuff on each of my characters um, you don't happen to be a virgo by any chance are you i am not but i'm a taurus which i feel like oh. close enough yes. they're <laughs> close friends. enough they're friends <laughs> um in this instance the venn diagram overlaps quite a bit um so yeah i i like i like doing stuff like that and so it always pleases me when people are like oh the characters feel real i'm like hell yeah they feel real they are real in my they head. Do you want to see my spreadsheet? Do you want a spreadsheet? Do you want to know how many siblings they have? What their cat's name is? Favorite <laughs> color? What they watch every Tuesday? Like, come on now. Um, no, let's let's not pretend like I go that in depth. But like, I do like to have a certain idea of who they are, even if you don't see all of that on the page. Like, I want to know who they are so that when I'm writing these interactions, they feel like real people and uh, more to the point that they feel like real teenagers because um, I, I think sometimes in in YA and not to say that that's a wrong approach but sometimes in YA it feels like it's adults like who just happen to like we just call them 16 year olds or 17 year olds but they talk like adults mm -hmm. um, and I like to write characters who resonate very much as teenagers or, or kids if I'm writing MG um, but like I just I, I want to make sure that they feel the age that I'm saying that they are. Um, so there's there's a lot of interrogation that happens before I actually start writing them into the story. Yeah, I, big Taurus vibes. <laughs> I just, big Taurus vibes. Something that says uh, a Taurus is uh, just a Virgo who likes to take naps. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that's a hundred percent my vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I could take a nap right now and be happy. Um, but yes, that that I I won't say that's inaccurate. <laughs> pretty, pretty accurate to me. Um, but yeah, I I I, uh, 
my husband always laughs about it because he says that I like the act of planning things almost almost as much as I like doing them. Mm. Um, so like preparing for big like trips, like family vacations or whatever. I'm like, oh, bring out the lists, bring out the spreadsheets. Let's coordinate some outfits. Let's pack appropriately. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I'm, I'm very, fi- I, not, this podcast is just exposing me left and right. Um, I'm so fun as a person <laughs> with my spreadsheets and my random word knowledge. <laughs> we, we talked to Ayana Gray and when we were asking how, you know, how she wrote her story, she write, writes like Wikipedia pages for the world that she wants to create. So y'all would get right. along great. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Um, that's exactly the kind of thing I would do if I wrote the kind of epic fantasy stuff that Ayana Gray writes, but I don't, um, but I really love world building stuff. <laughs> so yes, Wikipedia I- entries, whole word, doc, like whole Google Docs with like links to specific sections. Oh, that's my jam. <laughs> yes. You know, like people use Scrivener, the people who are using Scrivener will judge me as they as they listen to this because I said Google Docs, because that's what I use. But like being able to click to specific sections, linking within the document. Yeah, that's all. Oh, great. We could talk about this all day. Who needs to talk about the book? Let's talk about organizational methods. <laughs> but, but to me, that kind of works because like it shows in the book. That's why you know, you can either love or loathe the character because yes. it's kind of like very, very personable mm-hmm. and they seem like a real, a real thing, like a real, right. you know, a real teenager in front of me, like struggling to do whatever they're struggling with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Which then brings me to want to talk about uh, Trina Lowe. I think she probably is my favorite <laughs> character, though she's only there. In the and very- she's not even... That, that's the best part about Trina is that she's not there, but she's there. There she yep. is. There. Informs what everybody is thinking about, what they're doing. So much of her is still there, even when she's not there, which is a fun sure. thing to write. <laughs> uh, she makes an appearance, like only within the opening chapter of of the mm-hmm. book, and but her presence is like it's just forever felt throughout this novel and I would personally love to see her walking into the Scrabble tournament like on the big screen because the way (laughs) you wrote that part I just saw I saw everything so clearly and I'm like oh man this is when I I wish I had like Oprah money I just be like let's (laughs) Oprah money I too wish you had Oprah money to make this movie (laughs) we'll see um yeah, no, she's she's really fun to write. And it's really fun to try and write a character who is not there, but so present for everybody. Um, and I, one of the things that I really wanted to do with this book was um, to set up a mystery that is really entirely dependent on people's memories, mm-hmm. which is a whole complication in itself because everybody things resonate with people differently so you remember different things and you remember things differently based on who you are and what you bring to it um and so that that was just really fun for me like the the idea that she's 
ever present without actually being there at all. And you only see her in other people's memories and through other people's eyes. And it's sort of interesting trying to reconstruct not just a situation, but a character and who she is based on who she is with all these other people and who she is to all these other people. Um, she's really fun to me to play with that kind of concept. Why was writing a character like, um, like Najwa important in YA novels? Uh, to me, it was important on a couple of levels. First of all, um, and we know this because we're all, you know, uh, not in the majority here, <laughs> but um, you don't often get to exist as a Muslim, as a visibly Muslim person um, in fiction, in a story that is not about Islam at its center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was important to me to write a hijabi character, but in a story that had nothing to do with being Muslim. She is. She is Muslim, and that's just who she, it's just a part of who she is. And uh, I take great care to writing her, her faith into the story, but it's not the center of her story. And I think that's important. I think that's an important step in representation is when you get to see someone who looks at your, like you, um, in a story that has nothing to do with oppression or pain or marginalization, nothing like that. Um, she gets to be the center of a story where she wants to solve a murder. You know, and my hijabi sisters, we should be. We should be there. We should be solving murders. We should be in fantasy worlds. We should be doing all these things where being Muslim is not at the core of it. Right. Um, it does. The story doesn't have to be about that. Um, and so that was important to me. And I was very happy to have the backing of my editor in the idea of having her front and center on the cover instead of something more conceptual. Um, she's front and center. She's posing confidently. She's there. She's in your face. Um, and I like that. I, I want that. Like, to me, that is important um, in the pantheon of what we consider, like, representative for Muslim kid lit. Um, I think it's just cool to be able to say, here's a hijabi solving a murder mystery. Um, yeah, so that's that was important to me. Um, the other thing was um, I try and write representations of mental health and mental illness um, in my YA in particular um, and as sensitively and accurately as I can because for Malaysians especially, mental illness and mental health is still sort of a taboo topic. Um, There's a lot of stigma attached to it. Uh, And so I just wanted to write a story um, where I show someone working through all that. Like I wanted to show that grief is a process and that um, you can still be dealing with it like years down the road. And I wanted to specifically show someone Malay and Muslim and Malaysian dealing with that in the intersection of their culture and their faith um, and their lived experiences, like what that is like, normalizing things like therapy, normalizing things like coping mechanisms and things like that. I wanted that to be written in, but as naturally as possible. In the same way that I write um, Islam into the story, like Islam is woven into the story, just sort of like this is just who she is and this is just what she does I wanted it to be written like that where it was just 
oh, it's normal that she has a therapist. Like, of course it would, like, of course she would do this. Of course she would do this. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important to, it was important to me on those two levels specifically. Yeah. What I want to say first is a uh, happy book anniversary uh, for you because your book is now a month old as, as far oh as the past here mm-hmm. in the States. Um, <laughs> and uh, we normally, when we, when we announce our books to our book club members, we're usually reading them at the same time as they are, unless mm-hmm. they're having to interview, uh, you know, some time ahead. Right. And our fiction pick uh is from an author named soon wiley and it, the irony of it is if i'm using that word correctly uh is that both of your books deal with a mystery and grief at the same time and i just thought <laughs> how how perfect was it for all, both our our fiction and our ya deal with the same thing perfect um perfect. It, it was interesting Although- that's a lot that's a lot of grief to to take on in a month but (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot but um yeah I I I love that though what a nice little symmetry you've got going on there (laughs) nothing like a good uh mystery to, to get the people going um but when you think about like this now being your third book out in the world like what comes into your mind of like where you are and what it was that you you know, little Hannah, like, when, what is it when you think about, like, look what I get to do, like, the very thing that I've always wanted to do, here I am on my third book. Isn't that wild? Like, it's so wild to think about, like, if I, if I sit back and think about it, like, I can't even, like, it's so hard to fathom um, that this is a book that isn't just available here, like, for people here to read, like, you read it, and you're, like, thousands of miles away, and, like, people are, all over the world are reading it and that's just wild to me I'm not sure little Hannah would have been able to comprehend the magnitude of that um I I'm really not sure that she would believe me um she was a very practical child remember um I'm really not I think she would look at me and be like yeah are you sure this is happening to you like I, and sometimes I don't believe it either um But yeah, it's been wild because, wilder even because um, when I started out, I started out very specifically wanting to make sure that I wrote Malaysian teenagers um, and wrote Malaysian stories. Um, And that's not to say that there is one specific like Malaysian story. I just meant that I was always going to write books that were set in my country or had my people in them. Um, I was never going to like whitewash anything or stick a Western viewpoint in where it didn't belong. Um, And I was very upfront about that, even from my debut. Um, Whenever I spoke to editors that I, you know, that were interested in my work or when I was um, trying to find an agent, um, every everybody that I spoke to was like, if this is going to be a problem for you, or you foresee this as being a problem in like selling my work, then then we're not going to be able to work together, because I I don't want to change anything. Um, and that's not to say that I'm not open to editing, which I am, uh, but that core of me is not going to change, right? And so if that if you think that that's going to be like a tough sell then I'm not the client for you um and so it is wilder to me to to have taken such a like stance um (laughs) which 
I guess you could call it like risky. Like I was an unknown. Like nobody knew who I was. It was my debut. Like I was coming out the gate being like, nope. Like <laughs> this is what I write. And you're just gonna have to take it, or you know, this isn't gonna work. And looking back, I was like, oh, that's truly the mark of somebody who knew nothing about the industry that she was going into. <laughs> like I couldn't have been that like brazen about it. Had I known as much as I do now about the industry, I think I would have gone about it very differently. But going in, I didn't, right? And I was like, I had nothing to lose. You know, if you don't sign me, so 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 what? You don't publish this book? Okay, I'll, I'll find something else to do, I guess. Like, there was nothing writing on it. It was just, I didn't even tell people that I was writing a book. Only my husband knew that I was writing a novel. <laughs> Only my husband knew when I started querying agents. I was like, if I fail, nobody's going to know that I failed. It's fine. <laughs> like, I don't have to, I don't have to go through this whole song and dance of explaining why, like, my dream is not coming true. Like, it's fine. Um, so I had no fear, mm. I guess, when I went into it. And I was also 30, 31 at the time. And I was, you know, I had grown up. <laughs> I was less scared of people um, and what they would say and how they would receive things. And um, and so I just kind of went into it being like, no, this is what I'm going to write. And these are the kinds of stories I'm going to write. And if that is not going to work for us as a like in a working relationship, then, you know, then we don't need to have a working relationship. Um, and so it is wilder to me now thinking about it, like you're, uh, now that we're, what, three books in, that people allowed me to do that. <laughs> No, like they weren't just like, oh my god, go away! You are so right. <laughs> <laughs> like, stop talking to us. Go away. Um, it's wild to me that people were just like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Sure, <laughs> Let, let's let's go with it. Let's just go with it. Um, yeah, because I was like, oh, that was a that was a bold stance to take as somebody who had no footing in this industry whatsoever. Um, but it's a stance that I continue to practice. Um, so every agent, editor, professional that I work with, they know that this is this is what I'm like. And I think it's just safer that way because then we're on the same page. <laughs> mm-hmm. From the very beginning. And I think- From it's the very beginning. Yeah. And it, I think it's important too that somebody actually has that stance. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, like you were saying earlier, it's important for, for people, not just in Malaysia, to read about a hijabi yes. doing normal stuff. Because yeah. it, it <laughs> as normal as solving a murder mystery at a scrabble yes. tournament can be. Yes. Exactly. But <laughs> you know, like, we, we can I we can also be Nancy Drew. Shout out to Nancy Drew. You exactly. Know? We so, can. You know, like it resonated so well with me because before I came to the States, I didn't know that I was a person of color. I just oh, same. <laughs> you know, so for for them this reality is like you know, maybe not really very unique or foreign, but maybe just like unusual because th- whatever they know about us is different. Mm, yeah. So, you know, to for you to make that stance is also very brave. And I'm glad that you did, because if you did, then we won't have this book. <laughs> I won't be like wanting to use all the Scrabble words in my future <laughs> encounters with my sisters and just like reading I love that you brought it back to your sisters. You're like, this is a legit word. It's yes. this book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so 
normalization is fine because it's 2022 mm. <laughs> you know like yes and so many and so much of kidlit in america while we're making huge leaps in the diversity that is available um, so much of it is still very much U.S. focused, Western focused, and that's just not kidlit in America. That's the pantheon of kidlit if we're talking about it. So much of it is Western focused, right? And I really want wanted to be the person who was like, "Look, you can write your stories. You can be from outside America. You can write those stories, and they will find readers." Um, and I think that's important as well because so many people outside the U.S. looking in or outside the West looking in think that it is impossible. And I'm not saying it's easy because it's not. And it continues to be there, continues to be things that you have to fight against and push and struggle. Um, and sometimes it's just very, very tiring. But I think it is important to be here and be as loud and as visible as you can so that you can sort of elbow enough space for more people to come in um so i just think it's important to exist like and exist loudly uh, in as this person um, in order for other people to see that they can also do it yeah you don't have to like my books but at least you know i can shove some space aside maybe and pull you up too so that you can have the books that you actually want to read that are not from me (laughs) exactly that part i thought you were getting ready to say you don't have to like my books but just buy them no i'm just kidding oh no that would be great too (laughs) 100 percent. if you feel like you want to just buy them and like keep them as nice doorstops like the art's pretty i don't know like (laughs) display them for the art and never read a word that would be fine with me too (laughs) i always joke about this because like a horrifying thing to me is when people I know are reading my work like I don't know what it is like I just hate it so much and so in an ideal world everybody I love would buy my books and then absolutely never read them just buy them (laughs) just keep them and then never ever speak to me of them again Make it as my memento. You know? Honestly, my dad, my dad got a copy and he was like, I started reading it. I'm like, uh-uh, no, no, we're not talking about that. <laughs> you don't have to tell me anything. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. And if you do or you don't, let's just not speak of this again. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody I know talk to me about any of my books. <laughs> Just pretend that I do something else. <laughs> what has been the most important advice about writing that you always take in consideration when you start a new piece? Um, I don't read much Stephen King, but the one book that I read cover to cover several times is On Writing. Yes, And um, one of the things that he wrote in there that really resonated with me, and this was even before I started writing fiction at all, um, was write with the door closed, edit with the door open. Mm. Um, when you're writing your first draft, it's just for you, um, telling yourself the story, and you just get it out in whatever form that you want. But once you start editing, you need to open the door. <laughs> you need to um, learn how to accept feedback, um, how to use it to make your story even stronger. 
Um, and that was one of the things that really, really resonated with me even before I started writing, because I took that as a form of advice that I could use in journalism as well. To be open to edits, to be open to criticism, to be open to feedback. Um, those are those are skills <laughs> that you need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, not just accepting the feedback, but also recognizing how to take it and make it your own, like not sacrificing the story that you want to tell for other people's voices, but also understanding that you can't make the story the best you can on your own. Um, And that's a, that's a skill that you have to learn. And I think that comes with a lot of practice and a lot of experience, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a thing that has always, uh, that I've always like really like, I have it written here on the wall, um, which is you, write with the door closed you, you draft with the door closed you edit with the door open that's a really good book but it's funny that no one ever told him while he was editing all of his books that it's okay <laughs> to take his stories from out of Maine like just put them put them somewhere else <laughs> every look look I can't fault him for that because <laughs> all my stories are set in Malaysia and you know what Stephen King you want to write Maine into every story you want yeah, you do you, I guess. You know, maybe he, he too took a militant stance about main representation. I guess with his editors and his agent. I, you know, maybe maybe he too took the Hana Alkaf approach and was like, you know, there's not enough main in fiction, and we are going to fix it single-handedly by writing it into every single one of the many, 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 many books. That we write. See? Okay. I'm not, I can't say anything. <laughs> he too might have had this conversation. <laughs> and be like, you know what? Nobody thinks about me. <laughs> it's fair. I, I very rarely think about Maine. So, you know, maybe he's got a point. Be like, it's not all about the lobsters. <laughs> You know what? How many books there are set in New York? Maine needs its time to shine. Yeah. Can't yeah. fault him. So there's a lot of pressure in growing up to be perfect, especially or specifically for Asian kids. You know, <laughs> I love that for us. Yes. <laughs> we often say in our podcast that why stories are not only for children, but also for the parents. As a right. parent yourself, and I am also a parent, um, <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge and maybe allevi- alleviating those pressures that I called plagued our childhood? <laughs> plagued. Um, um, it, it's interesting because when I was growing up, my parents, uh, they sort of skated this line. Like, yes, there was an expectation for, you know, the kind of grades that you were supposed to get and the kind of ways that you were supposed to behave and things like that. But there was also none of this like pressure of, oh, you have to go into a certain type of career, you have to, you know, do the certain type of thing. Um, And so they sort of skated a line where, you know, this behavior is expected of you, but also you can live your life. (laughs) It was hard hard to navigate Um, because you, it was sometimes hard to tell which way they were going to fall on things. I don't know many Asian parents would have been like, yeah, go ahead, fulfill your dreams of writing for a living. Because like, hmm, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's really not 
a very practical career choice when you're when you're younger and you're based in Malaysia and you don't really see a path to publication um, the way you would now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rough one because when you're parenting, I don't think you recognize um, how much of this stuff you internalize from when you were growing up until you're in the situation and then you're like, oh my God, I sound just like my mother. Um, (laughs) but you don't recognize what you've internalized until you're in this you're put in the same situation um, and then you're having to deal with it yourself Um, one of the I I guess the main thing that I'm trying to practice as much as possible is um, trying to be as honest in communication as possible with my kids Um, they are very curious and they ask a lot of questions and I remember as a child Um, feeling really like bad about being made to feel bad for asking questions Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily from my parents but just adults in general Um, they prefer you to be quiet (laughs) and malleable Um, and so one of the things that I try and practice as much as possible is the policy is to answer the questions as honestly as I can um, based on their appropriate for their age and understanding um which has led to a lot of interesting conversations let me tell you but <laughs> but i think a key component of it which maybe our parents didn't grow up with was this this idea of being able to communicate as openly with your parents as possible um which doesn't mean that i accept things like rudeness or swearing or anything like that but it just means that i want them to know that they can talk to me Um, And that I will always try and be honest with them. Um, So yeah, like, there's been a lot of interesting conversations. But I think like that that's a key aspect of it that maybe like, that maybe our parents didn't receive as much when they were growing up as well was this this kind of communication. but there are a lot of things that I have discovered that I learned <laughs> from growing up that I, I need to unlearn, probably. Um, but yeah, you don't you don't really know until you're in it. <laughs> you don't really know what you've learned until you're in it, and then you're like, "Oh, picked that up from my childhood, huh?" Yeah, <laughs> gonna have to fix that, huh? <laughs> so yeah, when you do it, you're like, "Oops, why did I do that?" Exactly, I and there's know how that feels. I know how that feels, and yet I still did it to my child. Um, and so the other thing I'm trying to normalize is is apologizing when I've done something to them that I know I shouldn't have. Like sometimes I'll yell, and like obviously, you know, I don't I don't see anything wrong with scolding your children if they've done something um, out of line. But I do try and apologize if I feel that I've gone overboard mm-hmm. <laughs> or I'm snappy because it's the end of the day and I'm tired. I've just answered like a million questions ranging from you know what would it feel like if our hands didn't have bones to like hey Ibu what's the Illuminati like (laughs) the range of questions that I have to answer in a day (laughs) like it's just it's a lot um and so sometimes I get snappy you know and so I'm like oh no I have to apologize because I've been mean I didn't need to be mean but I was um but yeah I think I think one of my main takeaways is that I think our parents were raised a certain way with a lack of communication 
a two-way communication. I think the communication was very one-way and it was very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there's no hierarchy. Of course, I'm still the parent and you're still the kid. And sometimes I will have to tell you what to do because you're a child and otherwise you will have ice cream three meals a day. Like you have no impulse control. I have to teach you the impulse control and sometimes (laughs) I can say no to you. Um, But yeah, I I think trying to communicate um, as much as possible with them is where I have been slowly trying to fix some of the things that maybe would have gone better in my childhood if there had been that kind of openness in our relationship. Yes, because I we I still struggle sometimes with that with you know just adults around me. So yeah. I know that has come from somewhere, and my husband <laughs> is a talker. He can talk forever (laughs) (laughs) the look on your face as you said that i'm sorry i know the audience listening can't see but it was the most exasperated like (laughs) you can talk forever and her face was just like oh (laughs) for better or worse you know like, like what you say when you do these vows but if i probably knew how to or if I develop that skill how to conversate even better I think I won't be that exasperated <laughs> so you know it's like it's like learning how to walk the more that you do it the better that you yes. get it so but you know it's not just it's not just the conversations as well. it's not just communication as well I think one of the things I'm trying to teach my kids is um to not like feel like they have to suppress their feelings their emotions in order to be acceptable to the adults around you. Do you know what I mean? Like to to present a certain face because you know that's what the adults around you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not to talk about how you're feeling or not to allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. Um, so yeah, that's another thing that we're working on. <laughs> it doesn't come as naturally to me as the, as the talking part. Um, and that's probably a reflection on how I grew up and again none of this is to like throw shade to my own parents because they raised me in the way that they were raised Um, but recognizing that and then now trying to take steps to mitigate that um, so that my children don't grow up with you know emotional constipation um, (laughs) is is a thing that we are working on at this very young age I think it's also the power of like being a writer. You know, I think writers often right. put their feelings. It's easier to. It's easier. There's a certain level of empathy you have to have, like with other people and with your characters and things like that. That it's easier to maybe have these kinds of conversations. Um, but I'm not gonna say it's easy to put in practice. But like we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> first steps you know baby steps we're working on it but yes um so will you talk to us about your uh your forthcoming group this group book oh, project uh the grimoire like a- of grave fates where there are different authors writing different chapters <laughs> like how did that partnership uh come together and and just tell us a little bit more about the book Okay, so The Grimoire of Grey Fates is a murder mystery that's set at a magic school um, called Galileo, the Galileo um, Academy for Excellence. And um, how it started was um, a certain person was acting up online again, Um, (laughs) a certain person who founded a certain magical world. 
um, was acting up again. And I was getting frustrated because this was becoming like a monthly occurrence and continues to be like a monthly occurrence at this point. And I tweeted, um, somebody give me a magic school anthology where each story is written by a diverse author and is from a different character's point of view, a different diverse character's point of view. And then as I wrote it, uh, as I tweeted it, after I tweeted it, it started getting a lot of traction. And then I was like, well, perhaps I should be the one who's putting this together. <laughs> I sat back and I was like, huh, I guess maybe I should do something about <laughs> And so I was talking to my friend Margaret Owen, who's the author of these amazing books um, at the time, The Merciful Crow, uh, which was her debut, and who's now probably best known for a book called Little Thieves. Um, and we were talking about it and she was like, you should totally make this happen. And I'm like, no, 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 you should help me make this happen because you actually write fantasy and have experience in world building and stuff. Um, and, and Margaret is a lot like me in that she works in very, um, in very spreadsheet fashion. Mm -hmm. um, we have never met a spreadsheet that we don't like. Um, and so uh, Margaret and I started talking about what this world could look like and what... Um, and at first, it was just going to be a regular like magic school anthology, um, and we were just going to, you know, have it be like different. Uh, but then we realized that there was probably going to be an influx of more diverse magic school stories, which was a thing that we were fully on board with. Like, give me all the magic school stories, but it also meant that we were like, there has to be some way we can do this differently. And so we were like, what if it was a murder mystery at a magic school? And then each <clears throat> point of view, each chapter um, progresses the story further and further along until you reach the conclusion. So each author would be responsible not just for, you know, working their character and their, their motivations and backstory into it, but also planting certain clues or carrying certain things along until you get to the final conclusion. So it's less of an anthology and more like a, like a giant collaborative novel, <laughs> basically. Um, like a group project on steroids. <laughs> so yes. so um, we started talking to some authors. We were like, would you be interested in, you know, in, in working on something like this? And, and to my amazement, uh, a whole bunch of people said yes. And this is like, we're not talking like, any random author these like the caliber of these 18 authors that we have in here is ridiculous like you've got your critically acclaimed and your award winners and your new york times bestsellers and it's like they all said yes to my random project that started with a tweet um, and it was just ridiculous like it was one of those moments where i was like you are sitting in your study in malaysia mm. and like these people recognizing you as a peer trust you with their characters and like trust you to lead this massive ridiculous project that who thinks of these things like um and it was one of those moments where I sat back and I was like what did I just do <laughs> what have I done <laughs> no power <laughs> like I don't know what to do with myself right now um so yeah basically it uh we, Margaret and I spent time just building this world. Um, and we were like, you know, we're just going to build the world and then we'll let the authors play in it. 
Mm. So um, we gave them the structure. We were like, this is how the magic works. This is what the school is like. Literally, we have a basic world building document and then an extended guide. Um, and when we talk about, when we talk about, when we were talking earlier about um, Google Docs and like sections within Google Docs, and so that's what this is. Like, we're like the political climate and like, the, <laughs> this is what the school is like. By the way, here's a drawing of the layout of the school in case you need to figure out where you're going. Um, and this is how the magic works. And this is how the school works. And this is how what the kids majors need to be. Here are the houses. Here's some, here's a list of faculty you can use if you want to like, <laughs> because we needed common threads, right, throughout the stories. And we we're like, you should all be working based off of this document. And if you need any other information, just tell us and we'll add it to the document so that everybody has the same reference point. But other than that, we were like, okay, tell us who your main character is. Tell us what their power is within this structure that we've given you. Tell us what their, their aptitudes are, their magical aptitudes are you know, give us some background and then um, we'll tell you what, what needs to happen in your chapter to move the mystery forward. But other than that, go ahead, do whatever you want. Like, wow. feel free to do whatever you want. Like whatever backstory your characters have, whatever personal stuff they're going through, that's all, whatever you want to do with that. When should um, we be expecting to see this book come out? <laughs> um, 2023, I think around summer, but we don't have a specific date yet. Um, it was originally planned for fall of 22, but, um, it's such a massive undertaking to make sure that we're getting this right and to get the balance right, that we needed that time to flesh out the story. Um, but it is in copy edits now. So yeah, it's summer of 23, I think, but we don't, yeah, we don't have a date yet, but, um, it, for it's my first time editing an anthology um a co-editing i should say uh and i i happened to choose the most complicated form <laughs> of doing it um so uh there's a pattern of behavior here where i simply launch myself into situations head first and then have to figure it out on the way <laughs> just just kind of make it happen first and then I'm like oh no now I have to actually do it (laughs) so yeah um great for me (laughs) but that was my first anthology experience and then I I told Margaret I was like you know any other anthology I propose after this is gonna feel like wow this is so simple like (laughs) in these stories don't have to be connected like this reveal doesn't have to happen for this specific these characters don't have to interact like like we're fine standalone stories oh my god I have so many more anthologies now Um, (laughs) that is a first (laughs) as a first experience it was Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. <laughs> There's so much management that had to happen behind the scenes in order to make this story one seamless thing. Um, moving from chapter to chapter and point of view to point of view and character to character. But it is such a special thing. Like it's such a special thing. Um, and each of these authors brought their A game to these characters. And so this is a magic school that has black kids and has Asian kids and has hijabis and has you know has a kid in a wheelchair has a kid you know struggling with mental illness like there's so many things going on here kids um, with disability like it's just 
it's such a more accurate reflection of the kids who will be picking it up and reading it. Um, and I'm just really excited that it exists. Well, we're excited. We cannot <laughs> wait for it to come out. I know all the kids and all the big <laughs> kids are going to be eating it up. Because, yeah, I, I grew up with that first magical school that you're talking about, but I was very disappointed how how things unfolded. We don't have yes. to talk about it. We don't have to talk about it. This isn't the space to talk about it. But in general, yes. um, any magical worlds that that blew up before this have not reflected yeah. all of us. Um, I was a kid who grew up on that magical world and on like Narnia and, and these things. And like, we weren't there. Yeah. We were never there. Um, and so it's it was just, and now there are so many other magic schools <laughs> that we're welcome in like Danielle Clayton's Marvelers like um there are so many and and like in my dreams all of these different inclusive magic schools are all like exist in the same universe and could do like um school visits with each other and stuff and interact like that's what it is like awesome. <laughs> yes <laughs> crossovers um, they all ex- exist in the same extended universe as far as I'm concerned so <laughs> <laughs> So we've come to the end of our conversation where we like to ask every guest of ours, uh, (laughs) we want to know what are either your top five favorite books of all time or top five books that you are excited about that you want people to know. Okay. Or you can give us a mix. You can (laughs) whatever goes here. Oh, it's so hard when you're presented with best of all time questions. I'm like, what do I do with that? <laughs> like, I need to choose my favorite child. I have two of them. I can't just say one is my favorite child. Um, that's just, that's just wrong. Um, okay. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Do you really ask this to every guest? And can they just like name them off the top of their heads? Are they just way more prepared than I am? <laughs> had two and one who absolutely knew, like she already had her list, like she knew. And then the other one, the other one was Melinda Lowe. And the only reason why she knew was because she had already listened to our podcast. And so she, oh, she was, she was prepared. Like, oh, I'm ready. So- oh. No, no, yeah, but we kind of like you know you all not you like you like springing this on people. I can tell you're like, hey, let's catch her off guard. Make her answer this question. Obsequious. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Let's do the five that I'm excited about that are upcoming that I'm excited about. Um, so in middle grade, um, Karen Strong has a book coming out called Eden's Everdark, which is exactly my vibe like it's dark and spooky and um like southern gothic horror um but for middle grade which i really love um and i got to read an early copy of that to um blurb so that was really fun for me and i'm really excited for other people to be able to read it um margaret owen's sequel in ya margaret owen's sequel to um little thieves is coming out it's called painted devils i also have an early copy of that this is just me flexing all the early copies of things that i have received <laughs> there's nothing wrong Basically. with that this is one of like the few author perks that exist like just go with it um the ability to slide into your friend's dms and be like i hear you are working on this book 
I would like to read it. <laughs> the ability to do that, magical. If it told me, like, this might be the thing that blows little Hannah's mind the most. Like, you can just be like, I really enjoyed your first book. I hear you're working on the second. Let me read it. Um, the idea that you can tell your friends that, amazing. Um, I'm excited for Courtney Summers' next book. Uh, I'm, I'm the girl. I think mm-hmm. is what it is. Um, Courtney Summers uh, manages to uh, both terrify and wreck me with all her books. Um, so I'm always very excited to see how she will wreck me in the next one. Um, let's see who I've got next. Um, oh, I've only named three. I feel so much pressure. <laughs> I've only named three. I'm failing. Um, this isn't a new release, but um, Zen Cho's Blackwater Sister is another example of really beautifully, beautifully written um, fantasy that's set in Malaysia. And that's not that's neither YA nor middle grade. That's adult, but um, it's it's beautiful because all of Zen's writing is beautiful. But it's also very very Malaysian, um, which I personally love and I always will try and push <laughs> I always try and push Malaysians <laughs> whenever I can um and one more <laughs> there's one more what do I do I have a middle grade coming out next year <laughs> that can be your fifth book What's the no one? that can't that's terrible oh my gosh I can't believe I just said that edit it out <laughs> always be selling no that sounds terrible um God. do you see the minute you ask this question is the minute that i will forget every book that ever exists every book is all there, gone is there a from book my memory that resonates with you that you you know like when you had children you're like i cannot wait to read this book to them the Marvelers was one of them. Witchlings by Clarabel Ortega. That was one of them. Um, that one I'm saving for when my son decides that he's he he wants to read those. Um, anything the Rick Riordan presents line puts out is magical. Um, when I first read the first Arusha book, I was like, like <gasps> middle grade fantasy is allowed to be like this, <laughs> and it it was legitimately. Um, amazing. I just love the fact that there is so much more Southeast Asian representation in middle grade now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not just talking Malaysia. I'm talking like Gail D. Villanueva's um, like middle grade books like Sugar and Spite and My Fate According to the Butterfly. Like The fact that these options exist for my kids now is amazing to me. Like There's so much more that I can give them um, than what I was raised with talking farm animals <laughs> yes, exactly. um there's so much more for them um so every time rick ryden comes out with some the rick ryden presents line comes up with something i'm always just like oh, that's see that's just something else to expand my kids collection like there's so much more available for them um but the first time i saw representation in a book um was probably reading sk ali's um Saints and Misfits was the first time that I saw um, Muslim representation in a way that, uh, in YA, in a way that resonated with me, Um, even if it wasn't specifically my culture or my country, um, but it was, the struggles felt familiar, 
the situations all familiar the way that uh, describing like the community around the mosque was familiar um, and that was probably the first time and I read that when I was what 30? <laughs> like that was the first time um, you rarely see Malaysians in, 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 uh, in mainstream fiction so you learn to look for scraps <laughs> you learn to recognize yourself in people who don't look like you um, but yeah, uh, and I'm so grateful to be able. We're both grateful to sit here in conversation with you, who you are not giving us scraps, but you're giving us whole books, and generations yeah. will come to know your works uh, and and see themselves reflected in it. And this is why we do what we do here with Vulgar Geniuses, is because we want people to see themselves in the things right. that they are reading um penguin random house i think in 2021 they released their diversity report that they had promised in 2020 that they were going to do and it yeah. found that 76 percent white writers were getting their work published and so to be able to find out that you are a part of uh, uh no telling what all the other publishing companies are looking like but you have <laughs> added your name um to the world of literature that gives children the space to find themselves and to connect and to see that they're not alone, that somebody is looking for them and writing them into, into history. So thank you so much uh, for coming and, and talking about what it is that you are doing and we hope that you continue to do for many, many, many years to come. Yes, I hope you. that too. <laughs> thank you. Those are such kind words. And really it is <clears throat> basically the motivating, the main motivating factor here is knowing that my kids don't have to go looking, mm -hmm. um, that they'll always be able to find themselves in a story. Uh, that's really, really important to me. Um, and so it, it, every book becomes very personal <laughs> mm -hmm. in that way. But thank you. It was, it's, it's been a pleasure being on the podcast and I'm sorry if I've rambled too much. <laughs> we love it. We love it. We love the conversation because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's real and it's the truth. And we always say it, representation matters, but you people that don't look like us don't really think that much of it because no. they can see themselves everywhere. But when yeah. you see something that's like this, it really matters like it hits you through it the does. because it's, and, you and, feel uh, and I, I don't want to sugarcoat it for any aspiring authors who might be listening that this is a happily ever after kind of story like you make it through the door and suddenly everything's fine and and publishing will love everything that you write and, and nobody will ever be racist to you ever um, <laughs> like it it's not like that like publishing is still a struggle but if you can keep that audience that you're writing for in mind, then it's a struggle worth pushing through. Mm -hmm. um, but for just know that for every person who reads your story and says they don't find it relatable, um, that there is a kid who will pick it up and see themselves for the first time. And it is more important to be relatable to that kid than to any other person. Mm -hmm right that's more tangible right yeah. there there you go and on that note 
thank you so much, Hannah. We hope that you have a wonderful rest of your, your day that day. is now beginning. Uh, thank <laughs> you again for coming on to the show. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.